at the intersection of mental health and parenting, that's where you'll find me. I'm Joni Edelman, and this is Mama Mental, the podcast that explores what it's like to raise human beings while you're still trying to figure out how to be one. Mentals, and welcome to another episode of Joni Fumbles Like a Fool. Last week on Joni Fumbles Like a Fool, we had a Q&A where we talked about how to parent your kids during a manic episode, how to deal with family that's unsupportive, and whether or not CBD is a viable medication choice. This week, as promised, I will talk to you about whatever thing pops in my mind. And today, that thing is what it's like to be inside of a bipolar brain. I'm going to start off by giving you a bit of a primer, a bipolar primer, if you will. There are two types of bipolar disorder, type 1 and type 2. They've historically been classified this way uh, for as long as bipolar disorder has been recognized as an illness. It was first called manic depression. I think bipolar sounds nicer. Uh, I don't know when that changed. I could look, but anyway, I don't know. I don't know exactly when they switched it over, but I know that in the 70s, my great aunt was manic depressive. So so you've got two types. In speaking with various psychiatric sources more recently, I've heard them referring to bipolar disorder as more of a spectrum disease, which is to say that you are not necessarily strictly one or the other you can be on a spectrum of the illness at any given time but for the purposes of your medical file you generally will be classified as either type 1 or type 2. I am technically well this is where it gets a little hairy for me because I am technically type 1 very technically which is to say that I had one episode that would qualify as psychosis but because I've only had one even though that technically qualifies me I don't really identify as type one because uh, as a nurse I've seen type one folks and let me tell you type one these are these you know these are people that think they're Jesus at times you know it's it's beyond it's beyond being energetic it's It's truly pathological. So while my psychiatrist identifies me jokingly as type 1.5 for the purposes of general conversation, I call myself type 2. And if it's a situation where someone wants to learn, understand, know more about the disorder, I will give them more information as I am to you right now, because you're a captive audience. You can't say no. (laughs) So I'll tell you a little bit about what it feels like to be inside my brain. 
And this, my experience is not the same as other folks experience. Of course, everyone's experience of their mental illness is personal, but there are certainly some similarities. And I think that folks will hear this description and either be able to sympathize or possibly empathize if you've ever been depressed or if you've ever been sort of in a place where your mood is very elevated. It's really not that far of a stretch to consider what it would be like to be in that state in a, in a diseased way. My doctor once told me that the, the real definition or the, the sort of the flip point with mental illness is when whatever's happening starts to impact your life, which is to say that if you are someone who is, has obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's mild enough that your compulsions or obsessions don't impact your day-to-day living, well, then you can keep on doing your day-to-day living. And you might be able to handle any flare-ups or situations with a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapies or meditations. But there is a sort of a tipping point with mental illness, just like there is with anything. And that's when you flip from one thing to the next, and then you've become, it's, it's become an interference. So my first depressive episode, I was 15. I had just turned 15. And it's not uncommon for bipolar disorder to appear in the teens. It can show up up to about age 25, usually. But most folks will have their first break somewhere in their teens. I don't know if I would really classify that first depressive episode as being a pathological symptom of bipolar disorder. At the time, I certainly considered it just another, you know, just teenage hormones. I was, I had just moved. I was living with my father, who I had never lived with as a, that I remembered. My parents divorced when I was four. So I had moved in with him. I was living in a new town. I had been taken away from my family and friends, not far away, but far enough that I couldn't see them every day, which was normal to me. I had a boyfriend who I would eventually marry that I was separated from, and that was really difficult. I had a baby sister who I wanted my whole life, who at the time was just about a year and a half old, and I was separated from her, which was really difficult. And my mother and her husband and my sister moved far away, far enough that I couldn't see them frequently. So that was a really difficult time. Who wouldn't be depressed, right? Who wouldn't be bummed out? And that persisted. That episode of depression really stuck around for about a year. For really my whole sophomore year of high school, I stayed very isolated. I journaled a lot. I cried a lot. I, I lamented at times my decision to live with my father. Um, I lamented my mother and her bad behavior and the behavior that ended up causing them to move, which was a sort of a legal faux pas on my stepfather's part, which is another story. But this was all very upsetting to me. And what I did to, is I just isolated myself. I stayed in my room. I didn't make any friends. In fact, I went out of my way to not make friends. 
I intentionally didn't participate in anything. I didn't even buy a yearbook that year. I, I think I, I maybe knew two or three people by the time I finished my sophomore year. And I would leave campus for lunch and go to my dad's girlfriend's office and eat with her. It was a couple of blocks from the school. Like, I really just withdrew as much as I could. And then my junior year, I made some friends. And I had started to become comfortable. I met a guy in my chemistry class who sat in front of me. I introduced myself to him. We became good friends. And he took me into his friend circle. So those those friends became my high school friends and I the depression lifted I started having a social life I started participating in things I was president of the German club I was in various plays I had was finally getting myself sort of together with my classes because the academics were much harder than my previous high school and I was taking a bunch of AP and honors classes so things were starting to and things were good things were good things were good for a while And then, as you would expect, along came my first episode of hypomania. And the trouble with hypomania in our culture, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again and again and a million times until everyone is sick of hearing it, is that this kind of behavior is behavior that is praised culturally. We celebrate achievements we encourage exhaustion we applaud hard work even if that hard work is a malignancy even if that hard work is killing us and that's exactly what happened my parents bought me a car with the understanding that if i wanted a car i had to work to pay for the insurance and gas Uh, Plus, I was, you know, I wanted to eat lunch. I wanted to have spending money. So I got a job at a bakery uh, right after my 15th birthday or after my 16th birthday. And I I hated it. I was terrible at it, which is ironic because I love to bake now and I'm a really, I'm a pretty fair cook. But at the time, I could not keep it straight. I could not do things right. I just constantly screwed up. I was in a state of utter panic all the time when somebody came in and asked for a, a, a coffee And I would just freak because I didn't even know how to use the espresso maker. So after a couple of months of doing that and being really sort of bad at it, I I got a job at a clothing store and I was successful. I was in all of these honors and advanced placement classes. I was doing very well and I was working and I was quickly promoted to the assistant manager, which meant I was working even more. And I was getting up in the morning and going to school and coming home and changing and going to work. And I was doing that several days a week. And then I was usually working either one or both days of the weekend. I was working about 35 hours a week, which is an incredible workload for a a 16 year old who is taking an enormous class load. And I mean, uh, English, AP history, German, trig, I don't think I was taking calculus. I took calculus my senior year, but honors trig. Like I was, I was, my, my schedule was absolutely full. Um, AP chemistry. Did I already say that? I don't know. It was a really, really loaded schedule and I was preparing for AP exams and I was very focused on getting into college and I was working and I would come home from work at 10 o'clock. We closed at nine and, and then I would have to 
you know, tag clothes or put away returns or put out new stock or whatever. I would get home at 10. I had a friend that I would call and we would do homework together. Uh, I have wondered in my adulthood if he too is a little bit manic. I doubt he'll ever listen to this. He grew up to be very, very successful and he was a wonderful person and very energetic, similar to me, but I never saw him depressed. So I think he might just actually be naturally that energetic, but he would stay on the phone with me and we would uh, do our homework together till two, midnight, two, three in the morning sometimes. And then I would sleep for a couple of hours, get up and do it again. And I did this for months and everyone was so proud, so proud of me. And I was proud of me and I didn't want to let anyone down. This was the first time I really felt like I was impressing people. And of course, as the child of an alcoholic, all I ever wanted to do was impress people. All I ever wanted to do was be likable. So the more I impressed people, the more I tried to impress people, which meant pushing, pushing, pushing until I became really sick in the winter of my junior year. I was in chemistry class in the morning. That was my first period. And I was sitting on a stool between two of my friends, my friend Jordan and my friend Rhett, who would eventually be my boyfriend later, which is another story. And I, I fainted. And I was, it was Jordan that caught me. And I've, I've, I've praised him many times publicly because he truly did save my life. If I had fallen, I probably would have cracked my skull on the concrete. And then Rhett took me to the office and took me home and I went to bed. And uh, when I woke up, the, you know, I, it had been day, like, I was just so sick. I was so, so, so sick. And my father was always the type to encourage you to keep going. Push, push, push. Mama Mental is brought to you by Ravishly.com, your source for feelings, family, and feminism. He was the kind of guy that thought sick days were for losers, but I think he saw what was happening and he was really, I think he felt guilty probably because I, I truly was falling apart. Again, though, no one pegged this as problematic. No one saw this as an issue. I recovered from the illness. I got up and I continued to do what I continued to do. And then I quit my job at the end of my junior year to go live in Europe. And I stayed there for a while. And then when I came home, I decided to do something different. I became a tutor. I started tutoring a, a woman's children and staying with them in the evenings while she was back in school, which, which paid me enough to pay my bills. And it was a lot less stressful and I could do my own homework. And so senior year was better and I was more stable and I didn't have to be running the tightrope all the time and things continued okay for a while and and it gets fuzzy because who really knows when I was even slightly hypomanic or when I was depressed my moods shifted but after I got married in 1993 which is just a year after I graduated from high school all of that is is way outside the point of these stories <laughs> That'll, that'll have to be another, that's going to be in the book. But I, uh, 
had my sister because meanwhile my own mother was having a manic episode and was she left my stepdad and she left my sister with me she'd run off with a boyfriend and I immediately got engaged and got married to my high school sweetheart and we started trying to have a baby and then I got I don't know why I mean this is all just who knows it's 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 pointless to go back and try to dissect this behavior I know now that I was very intent on making a family for myself which is separate from disease process that was uh, part of my childhood that was part of trauma that was a trauma reaction not a bipolar reaction but it, it becomes difficult to delineate between when one thing was happening and when the other was happening at what point was I actually behaving hypomanically and at what point was I trying to heal past wounds and it and it's all very muddy and in the end I have to just accept that what happened happened and then I have to process it and move on and deal with my life as it is now because there comes a point where you just can't dissect your behavior anymore and it's just counterproductive so <clears throat> I got pregnant and it took it took a while which was shocking to me because I was young and I was healthy and I mean I was 19 whole years old and uh, I got pregnant and it was great everything was wonderful I found out in February and uh, in May she died the baby died so I had a 21 week loss and as you would expect I was thrust into postpartum depression right because I was postpartum and I and my child was dead so who wouldn't recognize that as, you know what I mean? That it was obviously postpartum depression, but I wasn't going to seek any help because in my mind, well, you should be depressed after you lose your child, right? That's normal. But it didn't lift and it didn't lift and it didn't lift. It didn't lift until I became pregnant again and, and pregnancy hormonally shifts me. And this has happened with all of the kids. I'll have a, I was manic when I got pregnant with Ella and my pregnancy shifted me into a state of sort of normal-ish behavior. So I became pregnant with her and the pregnancy was great. And she was, I was of course really anxious and stressed out the whole time, but she was born and that was wonderful. And then I had postpartum depression again. And then when she was about a year old, the depression lifted and I had a period of mania. And I just did a bunch of terrible shit. I talked about some of it with Kelsey. Some of it I haven't talked about at all. And I don't know, um, when I will but I, I one of the things I did is I bought a sports car which makes no sense but I bought a sports car and I put my one-year-old daughter in the front of it uh, I lost a bunch of weight I cut off my hair I just did a ran up all my credit cards um, essentially bankrupted us and then uh, some shit happened with my job and I got, then I, I was pregnant with Sean. Before I knew it, I was pregnant with Sean. And so on. Depressive episode after his birth. Manic episode after that lifts. 
depressive. Actually, with Sean, I don't think I, no, I never got to be in a manic episode because I had postpartum depression and then I got pregnant with Owen when Sean, before Sean was even a year old or right around when he was a year old. So the, the worst depressive episode was after Owen. And that was when I finally actually sought medication. And that was in the year 2000. So that was the first time that I was medicated at all for any mood disorder. And I still wasn't being diagnosed as bipolar. I was only being called depressed, postpartum depression. So that was fine. I did that. And, and it, I switched meds around a lot and things were going pretty great. And then I had another manic episode. Of course, I was feeling great. So I went off my antidepressants and I did a bunch of more stupid shit. And then I had a depressive episode and then I was manic again. And I went to nursing school, which was great. I, I joke all the time that I have mania to thank for my success in school because how else would I have gone to school full time, worked full time nights, taking care of my kids in my house and still maintained a, you know, 4.0-ish GPA. That, the only explanation for that is mania. And, and it's because I didn't have, to, I didn't sleep. I would go to school all day, go to work at night, come home, sleep a couple of hours, get up, do it again. And I did this most of nursing school, not the whole time, but most of it. And then not long after nursing school was over was when I really sort of kicked it into overdrive and decided to start losing weight and then developed an eating disorder, uh, decided to start marathon training, broke my leg, uh, and then left my husband. So I said I was going to tell you what it feels like to be inside my brain. And what it feels like when you're manic or hypomanic is there is a sort of invincibility. Okay, all of your ideas seem like good ideas. That's the first, that's the first and hardest thing. All of your ideas seem good, like good ideas. You might not even know, for the most part, you don't know that you're manic. And even if you know something's not quite right, it feels so good or right that you it's almost like you're powerless to stop it. I have friends who I've watched rip apart their family during states of hypomania and they couldn't be reasoned with just like I couldn't be reasoned with. It's not a state of mind that lends itself to reason. One of the, the biggest features of this state is that sort of feeling of transcendence, a feeling of capability, a spark of genius, or what you believe to be a spark of genius, the flow of creative energy that's unceasing, and this sort of immortality not true immortality not immortality in the sense of never dying immortality in the more metaphorical sense that you're capable of everything nothing can stop you and it's euphoric it's euphoric 
in the way that a drug is euphoric or a new love is euphoric. It's not a euphoria that's easy to part with, which is why so many people with bipolar disorder are so unlikely to be medication compliant. Because why would you willingly give up a superpower? You know? Because that's exactly really what it does feel like. Your brain becomes what, what feels like hyper-capable. So you may switch from thing to thing very quickly. It doesn't mean you'll, you'll necessarily finish what you started, but you may start lots of things. You may feel like you can and should start lots of things. Creative people are often labeled as crazy in this way. And Ronald Five, the doctor who pioneered the use of lithium in America, and who I've spoken about often, authored several books about bipolar disorder and the ability to use it as a sort of power if it's harnessed correctly. He believed very firmly that many of the people that we see as movers, shakers, policymakers, were somewhere on the bipolar spectrum. That is energetic, often able of sustaining more stringent or strict schedules. People who have these, what, what clinically is called a flight of ideas, but in the, in the bipolar brain, which is just your creativity. I think in many ways, he's right. Well, he's a doctor. <laughs> Not all doctors are right. I mean, there's Dr. Oz. Let's just pause and reflect for a moment there. But no, I think in many ways he's right. As I said, my bipolar disorder is how I got through nursing school with such success. But it doesn't come without its very great disadvantages too. Which is that the chaos in your brain, which feels so much like a power really at some point very easily flips from power to detriment. Which is to say that what seems like a really good idea may end up being the reason that you end a relationship or run up your credit cards or do something uh, sexually risky or put your life in danger in some way. And you can't ever know when it's going to flip. You can't really ever be sure at what point you're going to go from this energetic buzz to something truly destructive. And that destruction does come eventually for all of us. 
And then, when the dust settles and you've picked up the pieces, you look back at the ruin behind you and you say, oh, what happened there, you know? Oh, shoot. What did I do? But of course, by then it's too late. And then I have to believe that at least in some cases, it's that realization of the ruin that you've caused that then only assists you, holds your hand, if you will, into the depressive state that will come next. And then there, you have to chemically cope with your brain while you're also coping with your mistakes. And it's a, it's a really terrible place to live. I've always resented the idea that mental illness is the fault for anything. And as I grew up and became aware that my own mother suffered from mental illness, I was angry at the possibility that she might ever try to blame her mental illness for the things that she did. Because as I, as was said to me by Ravishly's social media manager, Jenny Barrett, which was said to her by her father, your mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And when you don't responsibly handle it and it becomes the reason that you do something, well, you're still to blame. You know, you're, it's still your responsibility to handle which means that the damage that you leave behind has to be cleaned up by someone. Ideally, that person is you. And that's very painful. It can be very painful. Because as I've said before, the person that I am today cannot imagine the things that the person I was 10 years ago did. She cannot fathom some of these actions, some of what I thought was great and wonderful plans. It's very difficult for me to imagine engaging in any of those behaviors now, much less actually engaging in them. When I look back at that period, or many of these periods, I, I don't recognize that person at all. She seems like a stranger to me. And in fact, much of the time, I wish she was a stranger to me. But she is me, and I am her. And I have to reconcile the things that I did, and it's painful. And who wouldn't be depressed to have to acknowledge some degree of terrible mistakes, some amount of damage. And then who wouldn't be depressed? We're at 30 minutes, so I'm gonna stop and uh, we're gonna talk about depression 
next time. Thanks for listening. listening to Mama Mental. And while I am a registered nurse, nothing that I say in this podcast should be interpreted as medical advice. Please speak to your own healthcare provider. And if you are feeling suicidal, call the suicide helpline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.